Hello and welcome along to the Reading Room podcast. This is Room 3. We made it. And coming up on this podcast, we hear from Sam Pidu, who's been reading some historical fiction. We have some poetry from Dave Wood. And the Reading Room book group reviews Forever Today by Deborah Waring. The two reviewers this month were Cheryl Cliff and Jill Hart, who did an exceptional job at keeping me calm, uh, which is normally Johnny's job, but Johnny's away uh, for, for this month, but he will be back next month. And I'll be along at the end of this podcast to tell you what's coming up on next month's programme. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. It's time to hear from uh, Sam Pidu, the award-winning documentary maker and uh, journalist, uh, journalism learning advisor, and also she's a community and freelance journalist. And she's been really reading The Berlin Inheritance by Philippa Gregory. And Sam took time from a busy schedule to record this review for us. Hi, Sam. Hi, Paul. The book I'm going to tell you about is The Berlin Inheritance, written by the historical novelist Philippa Gregory. The book is just amazing. It looks at the journey of one of King Henry VIII's wives, Anne of Cleves, and interwines um, one of the um, Boleyn cousins to Anne Boleyn, her story of how she comes to court and meets Anne of Cleves. But also, it has the story of Catherine Howard, who, again, was one of Henry's wives later on. But this story talks about how, you know, Henry you know, sort of from a female perspective, how Henry was to them and how many women feared for their lives or just people in general just feared for their lives in, in King Henry's time. Other books that she's written around King Henry's reign um, is The uh, Other Boleyn Girl, which is about um, Anne Boleyn and her sister Jane Boleyn. And again, a great fascinating story that... Perhaps Jane Boleyn, Anne's sister, had Henry's first and only heir to the throne. Speculation there. And again, a really interesting story. The book follows on um, this journey and other books in this series. Uh, the Queen's Fall, again, is about uh, Henry's last wife. But also then goes into um, how... Queen Mary and Elizabeth come to the throne. So it's a fantastic series, her Tudor series books. And if you are fascinated by history like I am, you know, I hated history at school, but I really love history now and finding all about this. Um, it's a great way to sort of have a sort of a snapshot into the Tudor lives, but how royalty lived. Um, and a lot of it is based on historical fact. Of course, some of the stories that, um, you know, maybe Anne of Cleves tells, in in the uh, Berlin inheritance book isn't always true but Philippa Gregory at the end explains what was fact and what was fiction but it's a great book so if you're into Tudor history um, and you want to find out a little bit more about what it was like to live in King Henry VIII's court I suggest all of these books by Philippa Gregory Thank you very, very much to uh, to Sam there, who took the time out to do that for us. And you can hear Sam's award-winning documentary, Love Letters from Home, by logging on to Siren FM's fantastic new website. Uh, and that's www.sirenonline.co.uk, where you can also listen to us live. Uh, while you're there, you can have a look at the Reading Rooms page, and that will soon feature our podcast and links also to our Facebook page. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, when we first uh, came up with the idea for The Reading Room, we, uh, we, we met up with a wonderful 
wonderful people at Writing East Midlands who have put us in touch with a huge amount of writers from this region. And if you're a writer and you need support of any kind, you could do much worse than log on to writingeastmidlands.co.uk and finding out how they can help. Uh, now, one of the many writers they put us in contact with was uh, a chap called Dave Wood. Now, Dave is a writer and community worker from Stapleford over in Nottinghamshire, and he starts uh, by telling us what it was like to be involved in a position as writer-in-residence at Waterstones in Nottingham. When you say writer-in-residence, it, it opened it conjures up all kinds of images. One is someone who just sits in the corner and writes. <laughs> yeah, well, no, actually, I mean, that's 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 yeah, the kind is. of thing that, that you know, like yeah. when you say that, that paints a picture in my mind yeah. of someone, you know, maybe given a little desk in the corner yeah. uh, with, with a pen tray and... Yeah. <laughs> and that's it, yeah. And, and that's it, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a lot more active than that, actually. It was running running sessions in the store. They put me in the cafe in, in one of the rooms. I ran a series of sessions base and it was a it was a fundraiser for for refuge um which is a women's refuge charity yeah um and that was looking at the editing process so rather than actually me coming in as editor then i'd i'd show people editing skills on how to make their own mind up about their own work that's very important to me is that people don't they don't have someone leaping and saying change this change that what they do have is they they have those skills to think right that doesn't sound quite right the other thing that i i, I got involved with was um coming with the, the idea of something called big word day which is not about big words but it's all about bigging up language so i came with lots of ideas to fill the store with with language-based activities we took over the gallery right at the top of the store and used that as performance space we had people coming along reading their memoirs we had people reading from um dracula we had um we had choirs coming along the the challenge to the choirs was to sing from a piece of literature so that was the kind of residency and that kind of pushed me into or pushed my reputation as a as a writer people got in touch they'd heard about me i write commissions for for weddings for birthdays i was writing commissions as part of a the the skegness sotan festival i was working around the this the sculpture of the the fisherman yeah the jolly the jolly fisherman the jolly on the fisherman, seafront in skegness right. yeah so i was working around that kind of area with the people sitting on the benches with the kids the families people who just wanted a bit of quiet space and i came along and i disturbed their peace <laughs> and i said look would you like a poem and the, the offer was i could either help them write a poem or i could read them a poem or i would create one for them it was it was fascinating just the response i think there was only one negative response what's the use of that and to what, what's your reply to that when you get faced with that i said well if you don't want one that's all right you could you, you could have a poem for anything you like you know he said what's your right mucky stuff <laughs> <laughs> i said well if you want me to write one yeah all right okay and he, he kind of drew back and there was a bloke two benches down and he said would you write me one so I sat with him and he said that he'd, he'd, had, he'd been diagnosed with cancer two years ago and he wanted a poem that looked forward so I talked with him I got some information and uh, I thought it's really strange because if I wasn't doing this I wouldn't have those moments it was quite a magical moment. <laughs> They're trusting me with that information, and it's quite touching. When you when you approach there, and obviously you, you feel you must be in the public arena there. You know, you you, you know people are, are aware that this is what you're doing. Uh, it, it, do you feel that pressure? Do you feel a lot of pressure to come up with the goods? In one sense, yes, because that's 
what you've been asked to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, actually, I mean, you've approached yeah. these people and said, "This is what I can yeah, do," haven't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's a bit like a blacksmith. He'd say, "Right, what would you like me to make?" Okay, that's what you'd like me to make. I need a bit more information about that, whatever it is. So, for example, it's a gate. A gate is not just not a gate. A gate is personal. It's something that you go through into your house into your realm yeah so therefore a poem is not just a poem about anything i want to know what you want this poem about and they choose the information that they give you and then what you do is you pull it together as a as a poem yeah i think what you're doing there is bridging a gap actually because uh most writers will say uh, will talk about the, the perhaps the loneliness of the, of, the, of the writing you know being strapped yeah. to a desk and uh, you know just their own thoughts whereas actually you're uh, being very proactive with that and getting getting uh, obviously other people involved Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, it it becomes a craft. It is. I'm writing as a craft. The, the the difficulty is always. It's quite strange when you go back to your own writing, and you have to dig for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and that's always the strange bit, because sometimes it's just not coming, and you've just got to trust yourself and say, right, okay, put your pen on your paper, and find out what comes. One of your commissions, you're you're, you're kind of going to going to read for us. Yes, uh, and this is this is someone. Uh, did you? Uh, so how how did these people find out about this? This is for the fortieth birthday. So how did these people find out about Dave Wood? It was through. I knew the mother, and I texted this morning just to say, look, is it okay if I read this out? Because as a writer, okay, you you do retain copyright, but at the same time, you've got to be a bit sensitive because sometimes, yeah, they're sharing their information with yeah. you. Yeah, and one of them said, look, I'd really like a poem for my son-in-law's 40th birthday it's called a song i'm not going to sing it there my singing voice is not not brilliant a song to neely really from nad daniel and jody ah here's the birthday boy of 40 years with hairy legs and muscled calves who likes his beers who puts his love in all he does and wipes the tears all three of us love you to bits and you're our lion that glows with pride and makes us laugh that boards the snowy stuff swings his clubs let's do the maths you're my navy blue eternity that's always true sometimes you're daft and all of us think that you're cute and there again on snowboard then you ride the white you're our orange too our glowing sun that sheds the light watch out for grumps that aging brings you'll see we're right but you probably know that, my dear. You're perfectionist. You're our whistler, Canada, dream designed. You're my red for danger for all your sports most of the time. You're the dad that struts his stuff. You're theirs and mine. You're 40. We love you. That's true. Your past and now and future then. Remember that. A stag do's where we swapped our smiles like Cheshire cats. Protector now, my Neil has hit the forty like a cricket bat. And ten years of marriage, my love. So here's the birthday boy of forty years with hairy chest and muscled legs. Oh, have a beer. Who puts his love in all he does. We raise the cheers. For all of us, love you to bits. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. We're going to hand you over now uh, to Dave Wood. You heard an interview with him earlier. And uh, this is a fantastic poem. I really, really enjoy this. The Yew Tree of Ilkeston. 
A giant, about seven foot five, called Samuel, no longer alive, woke up one day from out of the clay and decided he needed a stride. First words were, Hey, up me duck! All right, come reply with a look. I was startled to bits and left Sam in fits of laughter that dug in like hooks. He popped in museum to see what's happening with town's history. We eyed on this bloke were a bit on a joke but have got him for note and for free. Face to face with a sculptured brown rat, he pondered and took off his hat. As he combed through his beard an assistant appeared, said, Hey up, I'll tell you about that. So he did. Then Sam told his tale. I thought that he looked a bit pale. Try a pub around here. We're not sure to be here, said assistant. You guessed. He was male. And Sam said he missed this old place. He remembered its charm and the grace. And pride in the town. And its fair was the crown. Once a year, folk thought it were ace. Is it still going? asked Sam. You bet. And Sam clapped his hands. Year 1252. It's still going, true. You should hear the noise from its fans. Now you might want to change, fella said. If you don't mind me saying, being dead, you've got quite a pong and you wouldn't go wrong with a wash and a sponge round your neck. I'll do that, then go for a drink. If you're saying it's true that I stink. Observatory's near and there's others round here, said assistant, we are not in a wink. Outside, by alleyway, at square, market were on selling pairs of socks and of pants, so he took this chance and walked through with no but a care. "'What size?' said the man at the stall. "'By heck, we'd struggle that tall. "'You could sew on a bit, and maybe it'll fit. "'You're bigger than any barn door.' Sam gave up on that, and instead walked round to stretch out his legs. "'There are fruit stalls and phones, bananas and bones, "'and uh, bookstores and hens and ducks' eggs.' Now Sam were amazed what they'd got. He remembered this old market spot, and back in his day it were lively with play. Then he heard about plans it had got. We're proud of us market, us folks, our customers, women and blokes, and our stallholders' smiles they stretch out for miles, like we've been told the funniest joke. There's whisperings here going on. Our stalls may be soon enough gone. Will you sign our petition? We're in a collision. It's like they've taken our favourite song. Sam thought of the old market stalls as he sat on a nearby wall. He got chatting with lads and grannies and dads and girls cuddling tight to their dolls. There was lots to be said from this lot. There were thoughts and some history in pots. They rambled along about Ilkeston. He let them go on till they stopped. I wish I could fly, one did say. I like to walk long Nutbrook way. I once worked at Stanton. Now memories cling on. And look at my hair, how it's grey. You know, Wilson was once a spa town. Hence Bath Street goes up and goes down. And railways and trains. Now we seem to have waned. Duke of Rutland must be clawing the ground. I collect up the acorns like medals. I once had a toy car with pedals. I sometimes get cross, but I've stopped that because it was like I was stuck on a treadle. Some pipes Stanton made we exported, and during the war we supported there was smoke that was thick, the airplanes were tricked, missed factory, so bombings were thwarted. 
I'm Kay Callum, from just over there. I'm Cockmanay, and I love the fair. Where there's hot dogs and onions, my grandma got bunions. By the end, there's no cash to spare. More gathered around Samuel's knees, told of wishes and hopes and of dreams. One offered a chip and a drink, just a sip, and chattered like rattling keys. Have you tasted a curry or pizza, or Thai food, or a good pint of bitter? Sam considered this stuff. He replied off the cuff that it's lovely now, I can greet you. But you see, from my clothes I've been dead. I got up, my head felt like lead. I'm a giant, you see, and between you and me, I got bored of staying in bed. If you measure, I'm seven foot more. The kids and the adults cried, Craw! My money's from those who watched my stiff pose as I stood in the sideshows before. Oh, I see, said the curious crowd. So they took him around and about, showed library and hall, the co-op and all, the, the scala, the church, and their doubts. The doubts? asked our Sam when he heard. Yes, we're troubled, they said, and we're feared that our old reputation has hit degradation. As they chatted, they tugged at his beard. Show me more, Sam said. Show me more. It's been ages. I wish I'd called you before this had happened, though I feel quite flattered you told me you were all out of sorts. Show me where you go swimming and play. Victoria Baths. Oh, I say. And what about tennis and cricket and any walks along Old Enoway? Oh, the cop shop. There's paths around the side. You can pedal to Stabo on bike. But allotments are going, no seeds more are sowing, there's houses building up far and wide. Said the giant, I still really stink. I'm unwashed and could do with a sink. We'll take him to a bogs, said a lad we a dog. Some accepted, no needing to think. He scrubbed up quite nicely, quite clean, though his pallor was drab and has been. The, the local beautician made it her mission to make him the sweetest they'd seen. The Benerly Viaduct still up. Oh, aye, said an old bloke. Tut, tut. It's not looking well. It's like an old shell. You can see it from school, full of rust. So how do you travel about? On buses, they'll not charge you out. You look fairly old, and if you're quite bold, you can ask him or give him a clout. Sam chortled and got on the bus, said thanks to the kids acting tough. The driver just laughed at the shop as a guest. That's nothing to what I've seen, me duck. The swans wander out in the front, and cats sit and wait like they're drunk. There's kids at Kirkallum, and whatever you tell them, they open the back like a trunk. Now then, you look like old Sam. The gentlest giant, yes I am. So Sam squeezed on in with the widest of grins, and nattered with someone called Pam. Getting off at the park were some seats that went round and round. Oh, what a treat! The blue roundabout had dizzied him out, and he wavered as he got to his feet. So there at the green Granby Park, he harked to the cries of dogs barks, and the sweet sound of bird call had him totally enthralled, when he noticed it was getting quite dark. He missed the days when he lived, so he wondered if he could leave. Behind for the town would be passed on and down. By the sculpture... He pictured a tree. The tree is a U. That's the one. 
to grow with their daughters and sons and their children and more than more by the score symbolic and infinite done he told his ideas to the kids said this is the notion let's dig on that piece of land the kids said that's grand now what stands in that space will grow big and bigger and bigger and tall and regenerate not fall like us Olsen folk tough as old boots we cope and salt of the earth that's our call so old Sam went back to his grave and the tree grows as tall as the days that grows on and on with names etched upon a symbol of Ilkston's ways. Hi, this is Katie Price, and you're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3. Welcome along to the third Reading Room book group. I'm very pleased to say that joining us this morning are Cheryl Cliff from the University of Lincoln and also uh, Jill Hart from the High Street branch of Waterstones. Good morning. Good morning. Morning, morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Now, this month, uh, we've been talking book covers, and if I was to describe the cover of this month's book, I think it would be a Channel 5 TV movie of the week kind of cover, something that I wouldn't instantly pick up. Um, it's got a, a picture of the uh, the two people, the author and her husband, Clive Waring, and it's a, this book is an account of lost memory and never-ending love. Um, now, over the, uh, over the cover, they also mention the fact that it was an ITV documentary, The Man with the Seven-Second Memory. And Forever Today is Deborah Waring's astonishing account of her husband Clive's devastating amnesia, which struck almost overnight and wiped out Clive's entire past. Trapped in a frozen moment of the present, he was left only with his talent as a musician intact and his profound love for Deborah. And she, bought, uh, she fought single-mindedly for years for Clive and for pioneering treatment until a desperate need to save herself made her flee to America, leaving Clive behind. But their bond was too strong to be ignored and Deborah was drawn back to England and to Clive in a most moving demonstration of enduring love. And that says the blip on the back. And also Andrew Motion describes it as a harrowing, haunting and heartening book taking us deep inside the question of what it means to be human. And the Evening Standard have blessed it with an extraordinary story of consistency in love and Deborah Waring tells it brilliantly. Jill, does Deborah Waring tell it brilliantly? Yes, I think so. I was... It's not the sort of book I would pick up, again, from the cover. I've got a slightly different edition to you, Paul. I've got a a hardback edition, which has just got a picture of a a chair covered in a dust sheet on the front, which is a little less emotive on the cover. It looks a little bit less like a a misery memoir. Um, But I picked it up not particularly expecting um, great writing, not particularly expecting to be engaged. Um, And the the story is well written. It's told, it's very simply written, um, it's not hugely emotively written, but it did engage me straight away with the characters, and yes, I did enjoy it. Yeah, I felt so. I felt it started. Uh, it started pretty much with the event, and then moved back mm, into into yeah. background history, which yeah. is a, a popular format. Shell, do you agree with that? Yeah, um, I was surprised actually how beautifully written it actually is, um, and I found it much more written in a way that you would expect a classic novel to be written, rather than a misery memoir, and particularly the first couple of chapters which were building up to um, Clive's illness I found them very full of literary techniques that sort of built up to the event Um, for example she used the weather 
um, to symbolise what was about to happen, um, saying things like, the water swelled around clogged drains and our wheels sent up a wave to to the left and the right. It was raining like it would never stop and it all seemed very symbolic and sort of build build the tension built the tension as to what was going to happen to Clive and I, I found that really really drew me in and yeah full of anticipation yeah you're right as, as they were talking a bit about the past I wondered if there was too much uh detail at times but I, th- I think it's a book that does need details for example when I was thinking uh, when they first got married they were describing the furniture they bought and I thought that was just a step too far uh, but it is a book that does require details and, and we'll, we'll just play an excerpt that I've recorded uh, and this will this will give uh, the, the listeners a, a taste of what it's like to live with Clive on on a daily basis one day I brought him down to the office to sit with me but I couldn't get anything done as he needed to quiz me and demanded all my attention that had never changed there was no let up how long's it been four years four years four years is that f-o-r or f-o-u-r f-o-u-r what do you think it's like i don't know darling it's been like death how long four years four years one long night lasting how long four years four years is that f-o-r or f-o-u-r f-o-u-r good heavens i haven't seen anything till now my eyes have just come open this moment I'm seeing everything properly now, in colour. It was in black and white until a moment ago. How long's it been? Four years. Four years. I haven't heard anything, smelt anything, felt anything, touched anything, seen anything the whole time. How long? Four years. Four years. Is that F-O-R or F-O-U-R? F-O-U-R. It's been one long night, lasting... I sighed, unable to say it again. Four years. I haven't seen anything, heard anything, smelt anything, felt anything the whole time. It's like death. One long night lasting how long? Four years. Four years, is that F-O-R or F-O-U-R? F-O-U-R. Good heavens, I bet this is very rare. Is it rare? Very rare, darling. I bet it is. You're the first person I've seen. My eyes have come on now just a few moments ago. I can see everything properly now. Everything's working normally. How long's it been? When the office phone rang, he stopped, stayed quiet, his head bowed, listening but not really following. Whenever he was out of his depth, which was when there was an ordinary conversation, or even when there was speaking on a radio or television in the room, Clive would sink into this hunched attitude as if he were ashamed. He looked as if he could cry, as if he were being squeezed, making himself smaller so he occupied less space in the room. And I think that that demonstrates what, what Deborah had to, to, well, I wouldn't say put up with, I think she persevered through it, didn't she? Yes. And uh, what, what did you think of, of Deborah? Amazingly <laughs> patient and resilient, um, yeah, quite quite incredible, really. Yeah, yeah, I I, I found that uh, you know what what she had to do, but I think the way when she started up uh, certain organisations, I think that really helped her to to, yes, to focus. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Um, now later on in the book, and actually I think it gets sold on the back of the uh, the cover that I read out earlier about Deborah leaving England. And it gets really quite quite sold on there, but it, it seemed like quite a cold moment. What did you think about that, Jill? Well, I was surprised she stayed there as long as she did, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think it was almost denial that it was happening, that, that there was something to do about it. I mean, I've been since been onto the internet and looked, and nothing's majorly changed. Uh, nothing will change for him, obviously, in uh, in there. But I, I I was surprised that she actually hung in there that long, and I think yeah, I think it was amazing that she did so. Yeah. Yeah. Did you think that, Cheryl? Yeah, but I think she was so involved in the work she was doing um, to 
raise the awareness of, of people who needed um, you know, proper treatment for brain injuries. I think that probably kept her going and gave her the focus. And I think when she did leave England, she didn't really get away from the problem and her feelings for Clive anyway. I think she felt that... Such a traumatic no event is, is you can't take, you're going to take it with you, you take yeah. yourself with you, don't you? Yeah. Um, which is obviously what she found. Yeah, and it was, it was a constant yes. feeling of loss I found, which was very well written about in the book, mm. I think. Yes. Uh, there, were, there were certain extracts. But not there. emotive, she wasn't emotive, it's not emotive in the writing, it's just telling you like it is. Yeah. It, like it was for her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you like the style of the uh, of the book over, overall? Yes, mm, very yes, much. Did, yes. And, um, and how did you read it? My reading habits are that I read quite short. Uh, bursts, uh, but little and often, if you like, mm. is good diet. And um, because we said before about the cover and stuff, and I knew it was never going to be a barrel of laughs, but I did find it quite difficult to pick up. I mean, did you read it in a, in a sitting or something, or how did you? No, I think I found it. Um, I had to, I had to make myself go back to it because it was quite a, a distressing. It wasn't an easy read, but I found it was also very gripping. So the, the, the narrative was well enough constructed to hold me to, through it, even though I didn't particularly want to be reading about these things to a certain extent. I, yes, I think it was very well done. Yeah. And Cheryl? Yeah. Well, I actually read the majority of it while we were travelling down France. We went on holiday to France this year, so we had about a six-hour drive. So I read the majority of it then, which I think was a really good time to read it, because I think if I'd have left it till while we were actually on the holiday it's not the sort of book you necessarily want to pick up for half an hour when you're on holiday because it is quite intense i think yeah it's not probably like... need something a bit more light-hearted <laughs> on holiday yeah but it's, it's definitely uh, it, it feels like a necessary book i mean i say mm. again it's really not something I would, I would pick up in a, in a bookshop i'm so pleased we did this because the idea of this reading group and any reading group i suppose is to push you into reading things that you would not normally read Absolutely. and then decide from there uh, be, you know because it's far too easy just to go in and pick up the same genre from the shelf all the time uh, and know you're going to enjoy it and uh, yeah th- I, th- this is good but w- are you going to be reading something like this again soon probably not i don't <laughs> think it i don't think it's something i think it is a one-off story and i think it's very important i think the fact that what happened to him was he got a, a virus the same cold sore virus that lots of people get um which in most people will come out and make a cold sore but just very very rare occasions like happened to clive goes inwards and eats his brain up basically yeah and it was such a random event i think it I think there was points of contact with it that I thought was quite interesting. The thing that you've got to make the most of today, make the most of what you're doing. Um, and the bits that I found quite moving as well was um, the business at the beginning where they don't want to bother the doctor. Yeah. I mean, I was brought up by people who didn't want to bother the doctor. And I think, you know, that sort of not valuing yourselves enough is, is I think there was a lot of good lessons in it and a lot of good moral points in there that are, aside from the actual thing that happened to him, I mm. thought it was made me made you think a lot actually you've reminded me now I, I remember feeling a little bit crossed at the beginning just wanting to almost shake them and say please you know take this seriously and go to the hospital and people do don't. something now but yeah no no you're right they're right they don't it's, it's, i think it was naivety really i think on deborah's part there but but you know it was the, the doctor did come round on several occasions, so she was doing what she thought was yeah. best, wasn't she? Yeah, yeah, and actually, she did. She did place a lot of trust in the first doctors that yeah. went round, and then it, you know it took a lot. She really had to move a lot, uh, a lot of boundaries to uh, to actually get someone to say, "Cracky, no, get to and the this hospital was in the now." 80s, of course, yeah, this was. It was quite. I think. I mean, hopefully, things have improved a lot. 
hopefully for the better uh, since then. But but yes, I think the trust in the medical profession in the 80s, that brought that across very clearly in a way that probably isn't there now. The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. We're halfway through our uh, book group and this morning uh, we're talking about Forever Today by Deborah Waring and uh, some of our reviewers do it do so by email which of course you can do if you want to uh, get in contact and you want a copy of uh, next month's book uh, which uh, we'll I'll announce in a minute because I've lost a bit of paper uh, the email though is readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk uh, Now Cathy, our email reviewer Forever Today I found this memoir of Deborah Waring's account of her husband's extreme amnesia both compelling and very humbling. The description she gives of the time she was diagnosed is very poignant. It was obviously devastating for her when she was informed that her husband she adored was never going to recover from his lost memory. But instead of giving up, she showed great determination by continually fighting for Clive and others with brain damage so they would have a better quality of life. I found this book to be very thought-provoking and left me wondering what I would have done in the same situation. I am not sure. I would, have, would I have had the same coverage, selflessness, determination that Deborah had and still continues to have? I have nothing but admiration for her and I would thoroughly recommend this book. And she also talks about the, uh, the cover actually saying that it wouldn't attract her, you know, so uh, maybe if the publishers are listening. <laughs> it just goes to show you, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. Now, also, uh, Melanie from uh, the Unicorn Tree Books in the Marketplace in Lincoln, who's uh, appeared on the last couple of programmes for us, uh, she's just finished reading Forever Today by Deborah Waring. And you know the other day, well, this is a conversation we had before, and she said she didn't really care much for the style, uh, but was reading uh, because really she was intrigued and by the subject manager a matter of Clive's uh, forgetfulness. And, and by the middle of the book, she got used to the style, and by the end of the book, she has to say she probably changed her opinion and can't imagine reading the, other book, reading the book in any other way. And the fact that at the end of the book, uh, where she comes to mean she's done a good job of reading, it's really engaged her. Now, by the end of the book, she's gripped, but with a wrenching fear of what if, and I'm filled with the sense of feeling rolling butterflies when I think of poor Clive. Forever asleep, without thought, feel, sense, and yet constantly looking for how this happened, what happened, and only truly awake when Deborah comes to visit. But it's the end that is the true wonder. The end is the finding of faith and fortitude and the wonder of love in the face of it all. Love that doesn't cure anything, but does nonetheless make things more bearable. Love that in the end reassures that we are not alone. Uh, now, we were talking uh, during the music about the ending. And what did you think about the ending of the book, Cheryl? With, with regards to the year, with regards to finding faith. And it seemed, to me, it seemed quite sudden. Yeah, it did seem sudden, a real bolt out of the blue. And it did make me wonder, kind of... If this was going to happen, why maybe hadn't her friend Ruth prayed for her earlier when it first happened? Why why now kind of thing? But maybe her friend realised she was at her lowest ebb. Yeah. And this was when she needed... But I wasn't entirely convinced about the power coming through the telephone line, but maybe that's just me being a bit of a sceptic. Possibly, Jill. I think I think um, that that this did happen to her when she was at the point of of um, past endurance. And I think, sort of, if you look at the nature of religions over the years, human beings do invent and you know make gods for themselves to delegate themselves to for the point where they become past endurance. It's the the alternative is suicide, for heaven's sake, isn't it? Yeah. So they have to delegate themselves somewhere, and that's the point where she does it. You know, the, she then finds a god to to do this. But what she does get from it, although it may be something that she's made up, what she does get from it is is a real respite. Um, I think, and if if I think if this comes in the form 
of an organised religion of some form or other, what that comes with it is a sense of community to support and um, support, which is what she gets. So she, I think she gets real respite and real community support there, and I think that's what she needs to survive. Yeah, mm. yeah. You were mentioning yeah. you know, sort of the suicide thing there, and I think a couple of times she she phoned the Samaritans, and both times they were engaged in that. For some, you know, out of the darkness of this book, that made me laugh out loud. Just that, you know, that, that was. Yes. I, I, I don't know yeah. why. I think I was searching for laughs somewhere along the line, but uh, but yeah, that that really mm. stuck out to me as. Being being, yes. you know, uh, uh, quite odd. I think another sort of quite powerful scene is when she does swim out to sea, and that's that sort of evokes suicide. The way she mm. keeps swimming and swimming out to sea, without thinking about how she's going to get back, and then she she also finds the strength to get back to the shore. So she's obviously got a lot of inner strength as well. Um, the human will to survive is, yes. is, 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 you know, it shows that that's there despite it, doesn't it? And But obviously she can't keep coping, so because she can't cope, she, she then hands herself over to a, a religion. Okay. I yeah. think, but she survives, which is the main thing. Exactly, exactly, and she's still breathing now. So to round up, I want both of you, would you recommend this book? Yes, definitely. Yeah, okay. And Jill? Yes, I would. I would. I think it's. it makes you think. It's, it's. I've told a lot of people about it. It makes you think you shouldn't be wasting time. It makes you think this happened to somebody at 46 to him overnight. And yes, it's a good lesson in making the most of life as we've got it now. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. And now we've just been discussing here in the studio because I've lost lots of bits of paper, but uh, <laughs> the next month's book uh, that we're going to review is The Jane Austen Book Club uh, by Karen Fowler. So if you or your book, cl- or book group have read that, uh, please get in contact with us, readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk. And now coming up, it's time to hear from Sue Moorcroft. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we recorded a fascinating interview with uh, Sue. And she's a short story writer, serial writer, novelist, creative writing tutor. And she's also a judge for competition entries for Writers Forum magazine. So while we had some time with Sue, we made the most of it. We recorded an interview in three parts. Over the next couple of months, we'll explore in detail uh, the processes of writing some romantic fiction. But we'll start this month with finding out more about Sue Moorcroft. I started by asking Sue how she began her career in writing. I started a part-time job at Motorcycle News on the weekend results team and through that I got another job um, another evening so my husband would work during the day and I would work some of the evenings and at the same time I was writing when the children were old enough to go the youngest one went to play group then that was my writing time two mornings a week and it was my guilty secret for a while I didn't even tell my husband really um, it was almost as though I was an alcoholic or something and hiding my wine bottles and I used to tidy everything away I worked on an electric typewriter you say it was uh, it was your guilty secret for a while. Can you remember the yeah. first time you, so, you let someone else read what you'd written? Um, well, he found it was exactly as though he'd found my gin bottle in the bottom <laughs> of the drawer of the desk. You know, what's this? Who's Nicholas? Because I'd written a story for a magazine and uh, I never sent it off, I don't think, um, about a little boy called Nicholas. And um, so I sort of confessed and he knew that I was a bookaholic and he knew that English had been my thing at school and at college. Yeah. Um, and I did a course, and you were supposed to be able to make your fees back through writing during the course, or else they would return your fees to you. But I was never able to put it to the test, partly because I'd earned my fees back three times over by the end of the course, and partly because they went bust. I see. Right then. <laughs> and those were, uh, were they short stories for magazines, were they? Yeah. That's where that's where that's where the money is in writing, really. If you're a short story writer, and my experience at Motorcycle News, although it was a non-writing position, I used to hear it all going on round me, mm. and how rude the editorial staff were about freelancers 
nothing was as important as editorial and the editor. And that was such a huge lesson for me. And I've kept it in my head because I deal with a lot of different magazines, a lot of different editors, yeah. a lot of different employers, and always the editor's right. And they used to have a sign-up. The editor may not always be right, but he is always the editor, which is the same thing. So can you remember the first time you had something published? Can you remember how that felt? The first thing I, I really sold was a story to the People's Friend magazine. And they've been big in my career, really. They, they're not going to ever make me a millionaire. But they gave me so much guidance, editorial guidance, um, that's been so valuable to me. And um, they bought my first story and the letter accepting it um, arrived on April the 1st, 1996. And so I was trying to work out how it was a trick. Um, <laughs> and it wasn't, but and it, it earned me £60. Were you satisfied with uh, writing short stories or did you always want to move to, to novels? Or No, I very much wanted to write novels. And in fact, I had written two and they were utter rubbish. But I've never enjoyed writing anything more because it was before I did the course and I just it was just indulgence. It was just like writing down your daydreams. I had no understanding of reader expectation or structure, really. Those came back from publishers at the speed of light. I realised that I needed education. And also somebody bought me a book by a writer called Nancy Smith, who sadly isn't with us anymore. And she said something in that. I can't remember anything else from the book apart from the fact she said, if you can get about 20 magazine stories published in national newsstand magazines, a publisher for novels might take you more seriously. So that's why I set out on the magazine trail. And actually, I'd sold 87 before I sold a book. Uh, something we asked Amy Wilkinson, who popped in for the first programme, was... Now, now you have this almost opening the matrix uh, to uh, some at some point, and you're looking at the, the structure of books and what sells books. Does that affect your reading? When you you know, can you let go and in, immerse yourself into a book without perhaps picking into the uh, the, the styles or the, uh, the the way it flows? Yes and no. If if it's if I can immerse myself, then it's a writer I love, which tends to mean they follow the same constraints that I do and they have the same philosophies I do um, viewpoint is some somewhere I long ago appointed myself the viewpoint police and I hate the omniscient viewpoint in books and never write it myself because I find it illogical and so if I start reading a book and it's got omniscient viewpoint where in the same page you can know in the same scene you can know the set the thoughts of all the characters present yeah. that to me is unrealistic i don't like it don't particularly understand it i never hesitate to criticize it but other people love that so i would never read a book with an omniscient viewpoint but i accept other people do we've been looking at e-readers and technology in e-readers yeah. is that something that interests you or you know i mean what, what are your thoughts on on, on the rise of, uh, of electronic well i don't know how what else you can be but interested as a writer my books now are going out simultaneously as e-books and they go out in four or five formats. So you could get your phone if you've got a smartphone. You mm -hmm. could get your phone and go onto the iBook store or Smashwords and download my books for about half the cost, I think, of a paperback book. So how can I ignore it? I know a lot of people in the Romantic Novelist Association, the RNA, who write only e-books. And that's normally because they write something that's so niche 
that you wouldn't get a paperback publisher to put the money in that's necessary because with an ebook you don't have the same distribution problems. You have other distribution problems such as there being four or five formats and presumably that will, in the same way as videos did 30 years ago or 20 years ago, whatever it was, it yeah. will thin down. I haven't bought an e-reader but I'm beginning to think about it which at one time I never thought I would say that. But I haven't tried any of them and before I make an investment of that magnitude... Mm. Um, I would need to be more convinced. I'd probably need to travel a bit more to make it worth my while. But I am now just beginning to think about it. Okay, so let's move now to the novels. Should we, should we start at the beginning? I'm looking now at Uphill All the Way. Well, Uphill All the Way is technically out of print, but you can still buy it. It's in that, that sort of no man's land where no more will be printed. But the last few are still available to buy. Um, and it's actually it's, it's getting a resurgence of um, popularity according to online rankings. Um, and I think it's on the back of my current books, Starting Over and All That Malarkey, that people are reading those and enjoying them. And they're, and they're kind enough to email me and tell me. I'm getting fan mail from people I didn't, I don't know. You know, to get fan mail from someone I know to say, yes, very, very well done. Yes, you've got a whole book there. Well done um, is one thing. But to have total strangers bother to email me through my website and tell me that they've enjoyed my books. Um, it's, it's brilliant. I love it. But yeah, Uphill is will always have a special place in my heart because it was the book that I sold. It, it was what made me a novelist. This wasn't the first one uh, you wrote. Is that, no, is that, is that no, right? No, it wasn't. I think it was the eighth. <laughs> I see, right, okay. Uh, but certainly um, moving up to uh, starting over and all that malarkey, were they written before? Uphill, yes, or? they were. I see. They were written before Uphill, and they were what got me a London agent, um, which would have been in 2001. And uh, she couldn't sell them at the time. The market wasn't quite open to them. They both went into what they call acquisitions meetings, which means they're, they're maybe going to get three out of the five are going to go through, and they didn't go through. So that was hard. But then I heard of this opportunity, um, this new publisher, Transitor, well, it was a fiction arm of a non-fiction publisher. They wrote how-to books. And they were going to try very commercial fiction, but for women uh, an age band higher than Chicklet. So they needed the heroines to be, I think it was 50 plus, might have been 45 plus. And although I wasn't, and I'm still not quite um, in that age group, it appealed to me. I did do a lot of writing for that age group in the magazines because the magazines that take fiction do tend to have quite a big readership that's more mature and you talk uh, b before we, we mentioned that you were talking about the uh, the solitude required love it you do yeah although i am a gregarious person in many ways i also like my own company and um my son is has been at home and and plays the guitar and has a lot of friends around to play the drums and the guitar and the piano and what have you so sometimes that solitude is hard won and it involves earplugs and shut doors mm. um, because I do like to write in the quiet and I do like to really get in the zone but uh, I work from home I don't work from an office it may be if I'd been trained as a journalist and been used to everybody shouting and everything around me it would have been different but I have always written in solitude so that's what I want and you can you can you can crack on you don't um i can't think of the word i'm looking for because i know i do it uh tidy your desk before you the procrastination you, procrastination you're not a, uh, a little bit <laughs> <laughs> my procrastination tends to be online things yeah. forums and emails and stuff but um i can't afford not to work mm. um i can't afford writer's block 
I'm not rich enough. Yeah, I remember seeing the uh, the stand-up comedian Dave Gorman. Who, he actually turned this into a, into a show at the end. Uh, but he was commissioned to write a novel, and he said his problem was sitting down at his computer to write it. Uh, you have the world <laughs> at your yes. fingertips, and yeah. you know, for uh, for procrastination, there's nothing worse yeah. than having the world at your fingertips. Yeah. You know, and just just checking your emails. Of That's course. right. That's right. Or or you get caught up in research. The book um, that I'm writing for June next year, which isn't hasn't really got a title yet, but might be called Love and Freedom. Um, has got a male model in it, and I keep <laughs> I keep doing research. <laughs> I, I, I feel tired, and so I think, oh, I'll just read what somebody said about such and such. So I try not to do that a huge amount. I have set, I suppose I have set amounts of things I want to do every day, set numbers of student work to review and or set numbers of um, stories to read and critique. Um, and then in the afternoon, I generally have a set number of words if I'm actually writing a novel that I want to write as a minimum. And so, yeah, I guess it finds its level that way. You mentioned titles there. That's something that intrigues me, always intrigues me, because I like to, to name things. Yeah. And I always have done to so. Any, anything I write probably usually starts with a title. How do, when, when do your titles do come in? Do they have working titles or do you, or do you not even worry about that until the end, maybe? No, I tend to give them a title, but it may not be the title that the publisher publishes them under. That's particularly true of magazine stories for People's Friend and My Weekly. They change most of my titles. Um, Woman's Weekly don't. It just depends on their editorial approach. For novels, I chose Uphill all the way, and the publisher went with it and said, yes, they quite liked it. I learnt a little bit from that. I found in the press they tended to see it as a negative uphill was a negative word and so I've never used a negative word in a title since and have said so when suggestions come up there's quite often a list and we thrash it out and my publisher will speak to buyers about what they perceive as a good title as well and yeah. if they say that title stinks then we don't have it starting over for most of the years of its life was called fresh sheets in my mind uh, and it was called Fresh Sheets because the central character, Tess, is an illustrator and she has this personality trait where things go wrong, she just goes and starts again. And so I had the analogy that she turned to a fresh sheet and there actually was a scene or, or still is a scene where she couldn't get something right and she just ripped sheet after sheet off her pad, her sketch pad. But most people perceived sheets as bed. And so they thought it was a good name maybe for a, a sort of a sizzling, a steamy novel. Mm. But my novels aren't that hot. They've got a heat level, but they're not like that. And so that went out of the window. And we were actually in an interview with a with a book buyer who very kindly gave us some of his time to talk over the, the book and chocolates catalogue in general. He said, pitch the book to me. Tell me what it's about. So I sort of talked for three or four minutes about what the book's about. And later on, he said to me, why aren't you calling this book Starting Over? Because in two minutes, you said it's about starting over about five times. So we sort of looked at each other and said, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to the Reading Room podcast. That was room three. We'll be along in October with room four. And the one thing we do know for sure is we'll be reviewing the Jane Austen Book Club by Karen Joy Fowler. So if your reading group has read that or you've read it yourself, please email us readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk and tell us what you thought and we'll read it out on the programme. And the Reading Room returns live on Sunday the 3rd of October at 10am. Bye for now.